0: It's the 23rd of September 2022, this is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. Hope you're having a good week where you are. It's been wonderful here in both Dallas and Long Island, where I am. I want to first um, extend a warm thanks to many of you who've approached me over the summer at ULAR, at Panlar at, in Idaho last week at the many meetings I go to, um, a lot of kind comments from all of you about um, how you consume and use Room Now uh, on the podcast um, in its many forms. Again, I, I can't thank you enough for the kind words about um, how this is a good thing for you. It's certainly been a very good thing for me since 2014. Um, we're learning a lot together. The truth is we, while we say that, uh, and our tagline is, it's, you know, news and journal reports for rheumatologists, by rheumatologists, um, the truth is that I'm really trying to educate myself and I put up things that are of great interest to me and luckily a lot of it's of interest to you. So first, thanks a lot. Second, if you do like our podcast, spread the word, tell your colleagues, um, please uh, give us a good score and ranking and review um, on your podcast channel, wherever you, whether it's iTunes or Stitcher or Google Podcasts or Spotify. Um, And then lastly, um, we can be better. We can certainly do better. And I need good feedback. Um, from you, and you can do that several ways. You can email me at jackcush at roomnow.com, or you can click on the email or the email I send you, or the website in that big blue box that says ACA, Ask Cush Anything. You can record your comments like, um, gee, I wish you would do this, or I wish you talked more about that, or I didn't like when you did that thing. Of course, Ask Kush Anything is also intended for you to ask a clinical question or present a case or ask a question about a drug, and you can certainly do that too. But anyway, many thanks to you and your kindness. Um, It makes us work harder at doing a good job for you. This week, the podcast has quite an array of interesting reports. Uh, JAMA republished this week um, a clinical trial about uh, the utility of tocilizumab uh, in patients with polymyalgia rheumatica. I think we're going to see IL-6 inhibitors approved for uh, polymyalgia rheumatica in 2023. As you know, uh, uh, tocilizumab is approved for use in giant cell arteritis where uh, you should be using it in patients um, who are either refractory or not doing well on standard therapy. It's Proven to be very effective, John Stone has really spread the word quite well about uh, tocilizumab and its effects. But um, last year, uh, last year we've seen the results of ceruleumab in the Sapphire study, looking very good at refractory cases of PMR. And now this trial, uh, which appeared in JAMA, nice article written, uh, a complete article written in MedPage today that we reposted for you. Uh, and you can learn about it. Again, this is a phase three trial. It will be used for uh, registration at some point. Uh, Speaking of vasculitis, a small vessel vasculopathy, Bichette's. uh, I found a really nice report, a literature review, I must say, about the use of IL-6 inhibitors in patients with Bichette's. Now, the article started off by saying, well, we know that TNF inhibitors work in Bichette's and blah, blah, blah. And I had to stop right there and say, "Well, well, well, wait a second. My experience with TNF inhibitors and Bichette's is not all that great, but it's clear that Bichette's does respond well to TNF inhibitors if A, you've got intestinal Bichette's that's not doing well, or B, uh, ocular Bichette's that's really aggressive. But most patients with Bichette's, joints, oral ulcers, um, genital ulcers, I have not found really good effects with TNF inhibitors. I'm very thankful for the approval of a premolast, but yet... This particular report, 25 articles, 74 patients, half of them being TNF naive, the other half being TNF experience, basically showed that they really seemed to respond well if given for vascular, CNS, ocular, mucocutaneous regions. Um, it was effective more so in TNF naive, 87% effective, a little bit less in the TNF experience, 80% effective. Either way... It's nice to know that you have another alternative in a tnf inhibitor uh, and again most of these were tocilizumab. Annals of Internal Medicine this week reported on the effects of yoga uh, and it does not work in knee OA patients. I don't know if that disappoints you or riles you up but you know it is Annals of Internal Medicine. It's a nice report. Um, uh, it's fairly well done. Uh, they had basically it was an online educational program that uh, patients would follow, and um, hopefully that their their knee pain and function would get better. But really, uh, their physical function had some improvement, but pain did not improve at 12 weeks and 24 weeks. So that's a bit of a disappointment. Now, if you're Disappointed by that, maybe you're going to be disappointed or in my reporting on biomarkers in hip and knee osteoarthritis, the Czech study. This appeared in the Journal of Osteoarthritis and Cartilage, or was it Cartilage and Osteoarthritis? I don't know. I don't subscribe. But nonetheless, I found this report. They looked at a number of different biomarkers, urinary type 2 collagen, telopeptide, CTX2, Um, cartilage, oligomeric protein, COMP, serum COMP, uh, high-sensitive CRP, osteocalcin, a whole bunch of them. And basically, they did this in a cohort of, what's this uh, population size? I'm not seeing it here, A 1,000 patients. Fairly good-sized study of patients with hip and knee OA, and they collected these biomarkers and then correlated it with clinical outcomes. And they showed that CRP, um, CTX-2, urinary CTX-2, and this uh, propeptide of type 1 collagen, pro-collagen uh, serum, PINP, um, were associated with um, nocturnal and walking pain, but not with fatigue. Nocturnal and walking pain. Nocturnal pain, I think, me to me, means that you've got substantial um, damage, and that you get nocturnal pain, and obviously substantial damage goes along with uh, walking pain. Uh, um, I guess fatigue they throw in because they're looking at some cytokines here and wondering if that is a cause for fatigue in these patients. So, again, unless you're a cartilage jockey, um, you're finding this report a total waste of time. I think it's good to see research in osteoarthritis. Lord knows we need research, we need new interventions, we need better understanding. We got to get serious about osteoarthritis. Saw a new term this week, the Twindemic. Um, I used to live next to the Twindemics. Um, this, the, no, that was another pair of sisters. Um, the Twindemic in JAMA describes um, the confluence of two uh, infectious disasters. One, the continuation of the COVID-19 pandemic that is not gone despite what the american president said this past week on 60 minutes um meaning that omicron is out there ba5 is out there and lord knows we may get another variant only two-thirds of the population is is vaccinated and and no one's wearing a mask anymore so i guess it's okay um but the twin is that problem along with that America's not wanting to get vaccinated, we might have an influenza problem. So that's a big problem. Um, I think it's up to us to be vigilant about um, our patients getting vaccinated to avoid the trendemic. Speaking of COVID, another meta-analysis showed up this week saying what we all know, not-steroidals have no role in either getting COVID or having worse outcomes in COVID. We put that up there for you. We had a slew of different reports this week about auto-inflammatory syndromes. FAPA, which stands for periodic fever, stomatitis, pharyngitis, and adenitis syndrome, the so-called Marshall syndrome. Uh, A a comparative trial of colchicine versus cimetidine, the H2 blocker, in 72 patients uh, for three months, and there was no placebo control here. And they both did well so colchicine i understand cimetidine i don't so i look it up and i find that the reason is that it may impair um, chemotaxis it may have some t-cell effects it may have some immunoregulatory effects but it's one of the earliest drugs that's been used for almost 20 years in patients with FOPA. and in this study colchicine and cimetidine did equally well in the 72 patients was basically, they were non inferior to each other, so that's encouraging. The NIH has a new auto inflammatory syndrome called, and maybe it's not new, but it's new, certainly new to me. The ROSA study uh, or uh, a syndrome R O S A H, ROSA, stands for retinal dystrophy, optic nerve edema, um, spinal megaly, anhydrosis, and headache. It's a syndrome that's due to a, a dominant mutation of ALPK1. Uh, and it's classified as an auto-inflammatory syndrome because they have fevers and headache and abnormal brain lesions and deforming arthritis and a propensity to amyloidosis. Add this to your list of yet another autoinflammatory syndrome. Um, another study of, of uh, FAPA patients um, showed uh, basically the clinical profile. Um, males equal to females, and these are all kids under the age of 18, turns out that the peak onset of the Marshall syndrome, or FAPA, is about age 1. Then, In fact, 90% of the cases were under age 5, and only 3% of the cases were over age 10. Uh, common symptoms, as per the definition, the acronym is pharyngitis with fever, cervical adenitis, stomatitis, and there's a fair number of atypical skin rashes in the syndrome. It's good to know about FAPA if you take care of kids. So do you think you understand the pathogenesis and biology of psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis? I'm not sure I do. And then this next report sort of turned me upside down a little bit, and that is a a study of 120 patients with psoriatic arthritis where they did um, genetic panels um, looking for auto-inflammatory disease um, gene variants. And they found a surprising number, 31% of patients who actually had these genes that have been associated with autoinflammatory disease, things like NOD2 and NLRP12 and a few others. Uh, And in this one-third of patients, half of them were found to have genes that uh, were associated with with autosomal dominant uh, monoallelic autoinflammatory disorders. This is a, a little bit surprising, but then again, not because if you look at some of the reports on the biology of psoriatic disease, you know, IL 36 plays an important role there, and IL 36 is important in auto inflammatory disease. Many of the auto inflammatory disease variants um, actually have psoriatic skin disease and pustular psoriasis associated with it. So it's not surprising that we're finding this. And then Uh, In the previous report on FAPA syndrome, um, when they were doing gene testing there, um, uh, this is a study of cimetidine versus colchicine, they actually did um, gene testing for familial Mediterranean fever, the MEFV gene, and that was seen in a minority of both treatment groups. A lot of these patients were from the Mediterranean region, and the minority were positive uh, for variants associated with that. But is that linked or not? Again, I think the more you look for these um, genes known to be associated with autoinflammatory disease, um, you might find them. And maybe this is something we are going to get into further in the future. Another study on psoriasis occurred this week looking at um, a fairly large cohort, 356 patients with psoriatic arthritis. Italian study looked at the durability of a primalast. Um, and think about that. A primalast, how's that do in your hands? Again, this is, um, I, I guess, psoriatic arthritis, mostly rheumatologists. The mean age of these patients was 60 years. They were followed for 17 months. What do you think is the retention rate at 36 months? Put in your vote now. That's right. The answer is 62%. Not surprisingly, the uh, the re- retention rate is 86% one year, 73% two years, but 62% at three years. Now, is that a function of how well it works? Is that a function of maybe they don't have other treatment options in this uh, Italian cohort? Uh, again, that sort of restricts actual changing of drugs in many studies. Uh, those who discontinued the drug was primarily for not working either as a secondary loss of efficacy or a primary loss of efficacy, secondary more common than primary. That was 18 to 34 um, percent, and then GI symptoms in 24 percent. But the durability was actually quite good, and maybe durability was best in those who had oligoarthritis in this study. I've talked in the past about Antibodies associated with myositis, and I am kind of keen on NXP2 autoantibodies and MDA5 and its clinical associations. Uh, a, a report this week, a review of the clinical profile of patients with NXP2. Now, there are a number of different reports that have looked at this. You can stack this one up against all the others, and they have a lot of similarities, but there are a few differences here. Um, and what do they look at? They looked at 60 patients with, uh, idiopathic inflammatory myositis who were also NXP2 positive and compared them to other IIM or myositis patients who were NXP2 negative. Those who had NXP2 positivity were more likely to have a younger disease onset. They're more likely to have dermatomyositis. They're more likely to have inclusion body myositis. That I didn't really know. Um, They had more uh, dysphagia uh, and myositis kind of goes with the the uh, study here. Um, they were less likely to have the antisynthetase syndrome or antibodies associated with antisynthetase. That kind of makes sense. The interesting thing, as you know, uh, is that uh, NXP2 has been associated with largely dermatomyositis, calcinosis, severe myositis, and in some reports, cancer. But in this particular report, they did not find more cancer patients or subsequent cancer associations, in those were NXP2 positive. There are some studies which do show that association. It's, a, it's not a major one. It's, a, it's sort of a minor association. But there are other studies like this one that don't show it. So something to be concerned about if you do see NXP2. I've seen mostly NXP2 in patients who had problematic calcinosis.
1: The STAR-RA study we talked
0: about at ACR last year. Uh, it had some play at, at ULAR, I believe. This is a study of real-world claims data that looks at a number of different outcomes, and it tries to model itself um, after the oral surveillance study. In this particular study, they did not show that tofacitinib had an increased association with malignancy. So, again, claims data of uh, patients with RA, 83,000 in the study. Uh, 10,000 were on tofacitinib. The risk of malignancy with tofacitinib exposure was no higher than the then with other DMARs or biologics, the hazard ratio 1.01, not significant. Again, it didn't matter whether they looked at real-world experience or a randomized duplicate cohort. Uh, the results were not significant. This is not surprising because other studies that have looked at um, associations of tofacitinib post-marketing data, either in large cohorts or claims data, they do not find, the things that were found in the oral surveillance study, that being cancer, lung cancer, lymphoma, um, skin cancers, uh, or cardiovascular events, or really even VTEs. But then again, that's looking at big, large populations. The thing about the oral surveillance was it looked at a really large population and followed them for four years, and but it was a population who was at high risk Right, they had they were older, they had cardiovascular risk factors. Um, so a high risk population, maybe that's where you see those associations. And I think we made that point before. Annals Internal Medicine also this week had a a nice review of venous thromboembolic events and deep vein thrombosis, it is the third most common cardiovascular disease seen in five percent of the population. Uh, basically, they wanted to make the point that half of patients who have. VTEs have preventable myofilabio- modifiable risk factors uh, and that um, treatment need not be Coumadin, but that you can use direct oral anticoagulants, which are safer and effective in the management of DVT and VTE. An interesting study called the Rhinomax study. Rhinomax, it sounds like a new product from Procter & Gamble coming to a supermarket near you. Vinomax, is the name of the study, and it's a study of a single dose of rituximab in patients with myasthenia gravis. 47 patients were enrolled, um, and they either received one dose of 500 milligrams of rituximab or a placebo sham dose. And at four months, rituximab responses were significantly better using whatever the standard of efficacy is in a myasthenia gravis study. 71 versus 29 percent is really significant. Um, and again, uh, it was well tolerated and whatnot. So it's interesting to see uh, rituximab, a drug we're familiar with, do well in a disease that's often difficult to treat myasthenia gravis. I must say, I've seen few um MG patients over my career. It often comes up in the consideration of uh patients who are weak. I've only actually had one diagnosis um in, in all my career, but nonetheless, I think rheumatologists should be familiar with its presentation and its treatment. So gabapentin in the past, we've talked about gabapentin unfortunately has been thrown onto that wood pile of drugs. We commonly use that now seem to have a dangerous profile to them. Uh, we use it, uh, it as you know, it's a, it's a, a, anti-epileptic drug that has been used in the management of neuropathy and pain and whatnot. And a lot of data, uh, on, um, population use of gabapentin shows its association with a lot of severe outcomes, that it really seems to add to toxicity, and especially in patients who are probably taking also other narcotic and non-narcotic pain medicines. So in this particular study, they looked at um, a, a very large cohort, 237,000 perioperative patients, and using a propensity matching scheme They looked at gabapentin users and non-users in a perioperative period and showed that perioperative use of gabapentin was associated with more delirium, 28% higher, um, more use of antipsychotic drugs, 17% higher, more pneumonias, 11%. And that was post-surgery. This was uh, surprising. Uh, Also surprising was a journal report from Clinical Rheumatology about Heavy metals, I don't know if, you, if you've ever had this joke, but, you know, in the county hospital where I worked, when prisoners were brought into the hospital and and hospitalized, they were often chained to their beds, and we would go by and nod and say, mm, heavy metal, meaning heavy metal poisoning, heavy metal, we're really talking about handcuffs here. Um, metals and hyperuricemia, not a discussion we frequently have in our world of gout. This is um, a meta-analysis, 20 studies, 62,000 participants. There's a higher risk of not gout, but hyperuricemia, and hence gout downstream, with exposure to arsenic, 1.7 odds ratio. Calcium, same thing. Calcium, cadmium, lead, but lower with molybdenum, and no effect with copper, iron, manganese, whatever. So again, cadmium, arsenic, um, and lead, not surprisingly associated with um, a higher risk of hyperuricemia. Lower with molybdenum, molybdenum, molybdenum. We used to have a lot of fun with molybdenum in biochemistry and medical school, only because the professor who was teaching biochemistry couldn't say it no matter how hard he tried. So we Made it easy for him by calling it Molly uh, B. Denim. Um, Again, chemical, uh, 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 abbreviation, MO. Uh, I think its number is like 42. I don't know what it does otherwise. A really good report that uh, I discussed this weekend with Michelle Petrie, hydroxychloroquine and lupus flares. It's a JAMA study. That looked at um, hydroxychloroquine dosing in lupus patients, especially when the dosing was according to the ophthalmology guidelines that say you should be dosing at uh, less than five milligrams per kilogram. And when they used that as the dividing line, uh, patients who were dosed at five milligrams per kilogram less, they still saw a fairly high rate of lupus flares, even severe flares. So, this is a study of 232 lupus patients. Um, half of whom had at least one flare um, and 23% had more than um, one flare and moderate severe flares, even though they were within prescribing guidelines. Uh, Again, the problem here is that maybe we shouldn't be dosing according to the weight as has been the convention and been changed for us. But Michelle has research and others do as well talking about that we should be dosing according, you can use weight as a starting measure, but we should be dosing maybe according to uh, hydroxychloroquine levels, which are now commercially available in LabCorp and Quest and whatnot. You don't have to have a specialty lab. Uh, My center couldn't do this. We tried looking into this, but now it's commercially available. It is something you should be looking at. The bottom line is you're looking at levels of a 1,000, I think it's nanograms per ml is the target level. That means you're at a good dose. 500 way too low, 1,500 way too high, right? And you can dose adjust. Turns out that when you do dose adjust, you seldom go more than 400 milligrams a day in most patients. Again, it really is a paradigm shift in how we should be managing lupus. Lastly, another paradigm shift comes from the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, USPSTF. Um, They came out this week with a new recommendation that medical practitioners should be screening their patients for depression and anxiety. That means you, you're a medical practitioner, you're a provider of care. We've talked about how disastrous depression and anxiety is on our patients. It ruins all outcomes, it complicates therapy, um, there's higher mortality rates, more complications, Yet, we don't often screen for this. What they are saying here is that under the age of 65, everybody should be screened. Now, if patients complain of, you know, psychiatric, suicidal symptoms, whatever, it's easy. Now you refer to a mental health professional. But otherwise, you, you should be screening. And they provide some answers and options for facilitated or easy screening. For instance, the... PHQ, that's a nine-question survey tool that can be easily used to, uh, to apply to identify depression. Uh, it's easier than the Beck um, inventory, um, uh, which was, is often a t- tool used in clinical trials. Uh, but quite simply, you should be asking about, do you have anxiety? Do you have depression? Are you suicidal? And then respond to it. Yeah, they're uncomfortable questions, but, you know, You know your patients better than anyone else. Uh, And even though they may want to blow off the symptoms, you know what to do. If you're a mechanic and you're filling up the gas on one of your patient's cars or your client's cars, and they say, gee, there's my front wheel is wobbling and making a noise, you're not going to ignore it because you're the mechanic. You know what to do. They may be ignoring it, trying to avoid, you know, the cost and the visit and the whatever to fix it you got to do the same thing when it comes to depression and anxiety with your patients. That's it for this week's podcast. Take good care of yourselves. Please give us a good review on wherever you consume your podcast. Take care.